Thank you to our sponsor this week, Watercolors by Brie Custom Art. One of the reasons I am so personally invested in this sponsorship in particular is because I have had Brie do custom watercolor for me, and she is brilliant at what she does. Brie does all sorts of custom art from homes to families, and as a fellow Christian, she also creates portraits of Christ. This all can be ordered on her website, watercolorsbybrie.com, and I will make sure to link that in the show notes for you. Welcome to I See You, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Welcome to the ICU podcast. This is episode 71, What Survivors Need, with Brandon Merrill, Executive Director and Attorney at Utah Homicide Survivors. Merry Christmas! Oh my gosh, it's almost here! You know, while Christmas can be a complicated time of year, especially for for people who have lost loved ones and might have complicated relationships for so many reasons, I sincerely hope you can find hope and joy in your own circumstances. Speaking of Christmas and winter... You like that segue? Frozen 2, holy smack-a-doodle, it rocked my world. Did you all see it? Bring the tissues, man. You go in thinking you're gonna watch a Disney movie and you come out a different person (laughs) that has felt all the things. Bring all the tissues, y'all. And I'm not crazy. Rob cried too, okay? Which maybe it doesn't take a lot to make Rob cry, but still, I'm just saying. If you know me, you know that I am a lover of all things Jesus. And because it's Christmas, I'm going to take an opportunity to tell you that. And in fact, I actually just bought a sign for my kitchen that says, In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. I love Jesus. I love what he's done for me. And I truly believe it is through his ultimate and all-knowing power that I find love and healing continue to unfold in my own life. So there's that Jesus plug for you. I love celebrating his birth this time of year. I have a review I'd like to share this week entitled So Brave and Inspiring from Girl 17 Five stars. Julie is so brave and inspiring. She's not afraid to say what she thinks or feels, but always with love and compassion. Her message has so much hope. I love how she maintains a sense of humor even in the midst of some pretty heavy topics. Thank you for being willing to share. My life has been blessed because of it. Let's be friends. Smiley face. Okay, and the funny thing about this is I saw that username and because of just the username, I was pretty sure I actually knew who this was. So I texted her and I was like, did you leave a review on my podcast? She's like, what? You only know one person from Erda? (laughs) Yep, exactly. I know one girl from Erda and your username says Erda girl. So I'm just gonna take a guess. (laughs) That was pretty silly. Thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast, Erda Girl. Thank you, everyone. If you rate and review the podcast, I love to share your review on here and give you a personal shout out. Of course, it totally helps the podcast get out there. So thank you for that. I'm excited to introduce you to Brandon, my new friend. Brandon is the founder of a nonprofit called Utah Homicide Survivors, and he has a fascinating life because of it. I know him because his wife and I actually went to college together. And so she reached out to me because Brandon and I have very similar missions and we set it all up and I'm so glad we did. Here's Brandon. Brandon Merrill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Will you first start by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Brandon. I'm an attorney and the founder and executive director of a small little nonprofit called Utah Homicide Survivors. We provide free legal services to families of murder victims throughout the state of Utah. 
And do you have any hobbies outside of that? That takes a lot of your time. It does take a lot of time. I mean, when you run your own nonprofit, you kind of have to be on all the time. You can't just take a lot of breaks, I guess. But I mean, I enjoy spending time with my family and friends. I like golfing, snowboarding. Occasionally, I like to play video games all the time. I like to watch The Office on Netflix. Oh my gosh, um, I, we just, for our date night last night, we just had a binge marathon of The Office because my husband's watching it for the first time. That me. is a travesty that it's the first time, but at least you get to see him watch it the first oh, time. Oh yeah, because, I love it. Well, and yeah. he, okay, just quick tangent. He had always seen little scenes from it and he's never thought it was very funny. And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> And finally, and he's like, okay, I'll try it. And now he thinks it's funny. And we just, he said, this is the last episode last night. It was the last episode of season three, which is when they go and interview. Oh, yeah. And then Jim comes back and asks Pam out. And he was like, we have to watch another episode. I was like, I know, I know. Season three, beginning of four, you got it. Anyways, he's yeah. getting into the Jim and Pam thing, which I appreciate. Love it. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's probably the greatest show ever. I, I've seen it at least season one to season nine, at least 30 times. So, really? <laughs> yeah, I, it's always on in the background. If I'm working on a grant, I turn it on. If I'm just sitting there, I turn it on. It's familiar, right? Yeah, it can it can drive my wife a little nuts with how much I watch it. But uh, she's like, I feel like we just watched this. I was like, that was three weeks ago. Like they're family this. members. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> Switching from the office. I yeah. How to make that a smooth transition. <laughs> but talk to me about your nonprofit that you started. Yeah, so technically we started it back in April, but I've been doing this type of work for a few years now. I started when I was uh, in law school. Um, I interned for an organization in Arizona that did similar work. I opened up an office for them here in Utah, but recently they decided they had lost one of their big money grants that they needed to operate. And so they just decided that it just wasn't going to work out anymore because the next opening for that grant was two years away. And so it just wasn't going to work to try to keep operating. And so they kind of just said, well, if you want to continue, you have our blessing, but we're done. And so I was like, well, I do want to continue <laughs> um, mostly because I really love, I love doing the work. I love helping people. And so uh, within 10 days I had uh, started the new nonprofit and written the new grant for the new organization. It was a little crazy time during that period, but we got it all started and going. And what do you guys do exactly for people that aren't familiar with it? It's called Utah Homicide Survivors. Yeah, so a homicide survivor is a family member or even a friend that is a s surviving person of a person that has been murdered. So someone that has uh, had someone that they loved murdered. So that's what a homicide survivor is. We kind of help them with any little legal thing that they need, and as well as other things as well, but mostly our focus is legal. So we kind of help them. Um, after someone has died, you kind of have to go through the courts, get the estate going. Um, if there's debts to pay off, then you gotta pay those debts off. You need to collect life insurance. You need to get access to bank accounts, be able to transfer car titles, home titles, um, all sorts of different things. And so that's our main thing that we help with because everybody that has had someone murdered needs that. Um, we'll even help file taxes because after someone dies, you still have to file their taxes. That's just how it works. But we'll also help with things like if there are children that are surviving um, of the murdered victim, we'll help with like guardianships. 
with uh, conservatorships to help protect their assets afterwards. Because while I always believe people have the best intentions, money can change people. And so they see, oh, this kid that I'm supposed to be taking care of has $100,000, a million dollars in a little bank account that's supposed to be for their care. They might not always use it for that care. And so we try to make sure that's protected as well. And you do that through the court. And then we'll also help, like I said, with any little thing that they might need. Well, we do all the life insurance collection for them. We deal with them because that's a, it's a hassle. I mean, I've had life insurance companies take over a year to pay out after a murder. Um, I've had them pay out within three weeks. So it just, it just depends. Banks can be notorious for being really difficult to get access to because they want to protect themselves as well as the information of the person. So you have to go through a lot of steps to get access to that. We help with uh, survivor benefits. The federal government gives homicide surviving children kind of like a social security benefit, but it's it's called the survivor's benefit. And so they get a certain amount of money per month because their parent has died. That way the person taking care of them doesn't have to expend a lot of money. We'll help with adoptions. There's a lot of stuff that we can do. Not a lot of people realize how much legal work they actually need and it's a huge void all over the country. We're one of the, I think, three organizations in the country that do work like this. I can't imagine how grateful they are for you just because having been through different crises in my own life, when you're in something like that, I haven't been in that particular situation, but when you're in that sort of crisis, you are truly just surviving. And so all of those things that you listed sound like they would just feel impossible to do when you're in that kind of emotional state, when you've just lost someone to murder. Yeah, they're they're worried about literally surviving, like you just said. They have to bury somebody. That's a huge cost right there. I mean, the average funeral is ten to $15,000. Then they also have to, if there's children, now they have to worry about who's taking care of these kids. What are they going to do? There's all these extra expenses. How are they going to handle all these things? And on top of that, because it's a murder, they now have a criminal trial of the person who killed their loved one. So they have to deal with that. And those are not easy. They take minimum two years on a murder trial. I mean, I have rarely seen any kind of murder trial go less than two years. And so they're going to every court hearing and those happen every six weeks to every three months. And a lot of these hearings are just little 10 minute hearings. They're just, hey, where are we at in the case? Okay, we're gonna reset it and go to this point. It's just so frustrating for them because now they, they also need to go back to work. They have to be able to pay their bills and survive. And then they also have their own kids and own families to take care of on top of now the person that has been killed, their family too. Besides all that logistical stuff, that's not even touching the mental, emotional trauma yeah. they're going through and they trying to deal therapy. with. They need therapy. They need to be able to deal with what has happened, especially because it's such a unique Thing to happen. I mean, most people might know someone or have heard of someone in their community that has had a family member murdered, but they don't realize that their needs are so different than someone who has died. Pretty much everybody knows someone who either close to them that has died or uh, they know someone who has had a loved one close to them die. And it's just, it's, it's still traumatizing for that person, no matter how the person died, when it's in a horrific manner. It just is a whole other thing. And for a lot of these uh, people, it can trigger even their own past that they might have had trouble dealing with. So it brings it all up again and they might start having problems again, depression, suicidal ideation, things like that, because they just can't deal with everything that's coming at them. For sure. 
because this podcast is all about compassion and connection, how that saves lives and that aligns so well with what you do. And by the way, thank you for what you do. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> I'm glad you chose that. There's a lot of things you could have chosen out of law school. So how have you witnessed compassion and connection in your line of work? I deal a lot with domestic violence. Kind of how I got started. Well, not and how domestic I got violence. Sorry, I'm a newbie. Yeah. That's in the home? Yeah, in the home or in a dating relationship or familial relationship. It's not always necessarily someone that's living with you, but it could be. The majority of the time it's, you know, it's a spouses um, or parents on children, but it could even be parents or children on parents if they're taking care of their older parents um, or dating relationships. It could be grandparents on grandchildren. You know, it can just be all sorts of things. And it's not just physical abuse, but emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, that, that all kind of ties into it together. That but, makes sense because those things have, n- no doubt, those things have been happening long before the murder. Exactly. That would make sense. I yeah. never thought about that, but yeah. yeah. And so, it, I mean, it's often a control issue when the murderer, and you know, I know that it, or it can be triggering for a lot of people to hear me talk about this kind of thing. And so they would rather me not use such harsh terms, but I feel like we have to assign the exact thing that they've done. They're a destroyer of lives when they do this. And so when I kind of got started in this domestic violence realm, it, um, you know, I just think back to when I was a little bit of a juvenile delinquent. I had to, I was assigned to do a ride along with a police officer because I, I toilet papered some kid's house. Oh, this um, is like not, I thought you were there no, for no, like no. job shadowing. No, 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 no we're talking about <laughs> 16 years old, 16 years old, and it'll lead into it, I promise. But Sorry, 16 I years old, I, I, I got God, caught I with it and they the judge was like, well, you need to go and do a ride along to show, you know, what the police should have been doing rather than figuring out why you were doing what you were doing. So it definitely worked. We, we showed up to a house at two or three in the morning and I had to play outside on the sidewalk with some four-year-old kid whose dad put mom through the wall and now she's being taken to the hospital. You know, that is something that is not an easy thing for a teenager to bind or have right there. But, you know, it just kind of, when I started doing this type of work, it really was like, oh, this is the kind of person that I'm going to be helping is this little kid. You know, that's kind of how they feel when that's there. And was so, that like a perspective moment for you that you look back on? Now, at the time, I didn't really think of it like that. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, I'm just helping out this little kid and it was really sad. But now that I think about it and I've been doing this work, for me now, I realize it it was a powerful moment, but I don't think I realized it then. And that's kind of how a lot of moments are in people's lives. You don't really realize the impact that they have until far in advance where you can look back and go, oh, that's kind of where it And when it sticks out, there's so many memories that happen at that time of your life. But you have ones that stick out. And even at the time, if you didn't notice that you remember it so well, and you're like, something subconsciously must have been going on that this was important. Yeah, we've had a lot of a lot of great things happen with the work that we've done. You know, there's two specific instances I can think of when I've been actually practicing law. There was this woman who she lived in Alaska. I was in Arizona. Her mother was murdered by the mother's husband. They had two dogs. Um, the mother's husband had released his dog to his brother, but was refusing to release her mother's dog. So that way it wasn't sitting in the pound. Literally, when we found that out, I drove up three hours to the courthouse where the dog was being kept 
and I argued in front of a judge for an emergency release of a dog because this person shouldn't be able to hold this dog hostage. And it was the only thing that this woman would have left of her mom. You know, she had just moved down to Arizona within the last three to six months. And there wasn't like a lot of family possessions or heirlooms or whatever. It was just kind of, they moved down there to start their lives over a little bit better job that was waiting for her and him. Um, and so we, we got the dog and I called all these airlines that were flying to Alaska. And I was like, hey, we have a dog of a, a domestic violence murder victim. We're trying to get her to her daughter in Alaska. Can you fly this dog for free? And Alaska Airlines stepped up. They're like, absolutely get it to the airport with a vet check. By this time, we got a vet to do the inspection for free for the safe to fly. And we put it on a plane and got there within a day. It was just you know, that's not something that many people think of would be important, but it was important to this person. And the, all these community members that stepped up to try to help us, you know, we had the pound people were like, hey, we want to release this dog. We don't think he has the rights. They were in court with us. We had the airlines, we had the vets, we had people calling all around to try to help us. Um, people were donating money if we couldn't get the flight for free, all these different things. And then I think the, the second one was here in Utah, and it was right after this really bad murder and there was a, a little girl that also was really severely injured and we needed a lot of legal stuff right right away. And the judge was just amazing. He was like, look, you don't need to come keep coming to court for these little 10 minute hearings. Just call me and tell me, hey, we're filing this motion and if, it, if I think it's legal and if it meets all the stuff that we need to meet, then I'll just sign it. You don't need to come in to have a 10-minute hearing for this because you have much more important things that you could be doing to help this family. And so it's just really nice when you see that. And then the community, again, was stepping up. They were bringing them meals. They helped them move. They you know helped them with all getting them furniture. They needed The little girl needed all new clothes because the clothes that she had were all in the house and she just could not bear to go back in there or see anything that was related to what had just happened to her and her mom. It was just really great and they a car got donated to them because the only car that they had was impounded because it was a part of the investigation of the murder and so they needed help to get around and communities really stepped together to help them and that's kind of what it is. It's not just a family that's affected when there's a murder, it's a whole community that is affected because it's someone that they know, it's someone that they've seen around. A lot of people just step up because of that, which is great. I really feel like sometimes when really challenging things like that happen, people's character really shines forth, yeah. you know? And we can either choose to withdraw or we can choose to jump in and say, what's something I can do here? I can get this lady here, dog. It is not going to bring back the victim, no. right? But it's some measure, it's some light that I can bring into her life. And they just want to advice. feel like they're they're being helped or they're they're being heard. And so getting and noticed little and things, yeah, especially if it's another state. Like she wasn't able to come down to the the little hearings for the murder that were every six weeks or so. So we would go up there for her. You know, she wanted to be there. She wanted to be there to support her mother who had been killed by this person, and she couldn't. And so she felt like, well, I know that if I can take care of her dog who she loved, then that might be something that I can help with. How has your job increased your empathy for other people? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I tell this to people all the time and I, and I hate how I have to meet people because I meet them at the worst point in their lives. I think that's the main thing is I learned that 
You never know when you're meeting someone what they're going through. I usually know part of what they're going through when I meet people now as my clients, but it's just all around us. Anytime I meet somebody new, you never really know what's going on with them. But I know for a fact when I'm meeting with new clients that they are at the worst part of their lives because they've literally just had someone taken away from them by somebody else in a horrific manner. And sometimes they're witnesses to it. And so it happened right in front of them. Or sometimes they themselves were hurt or injured and physically survived an attack on them. They have so much going on and it can be really easy, especially if anyone's ever had to deal with attorneys, they know kind of sometimes they can be either distant or demanding depending on what they need. You know, they'll be distant for the the weeks that they don't need you. But then when a deadline's coming up, they'll call you all the time and they want this to happen and this to happen right away. And so it can be really frustrating when I have a deadline coming up and I'm like, hey, I really need these receipts from you. And they can't, they can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of have to figure out what I can do to help them. If needs be, I'll go and get those receipts. I'll go and find them. I'll go and get, you know, we've had it where there's a storage units full of stuff that was property of the killer and the victim. And we needed to clean it out or else we were going to lose everything. And that was potential money or assets or things that could help the surviving family members rebuild their lives. They couldn't do it. They couldn't go in the storage units because it just brought back too many memories. That's where they all kind of worked on their family camper together. That's where they all did these little things. They just couldn't physically go in there. So I literally went in there and cleaned out these huge storage units, did a yard sale to sell all the items that were in it because they did not want one thing left, took the remainder to the dump, like everything that I could because they just can't function. And so we kind of have to look at it like that all the time. You don't have to necessarily treat everybody like their family members been murdered, but you have to think, what if I'm meeting someone at the worst point in their life? And I think that would help. How do I want to show up? Yeah, exactly. Because I struggle with this. So this is selfishly (laughs) a question I want to ask you in your experience. How do you not get completely bogged down by this? How do you, you know, stay at beat when you're at home with your cute wife? And so, <laughs> you know, how do you manage that? Because you're dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, finding a way to compartmentalize and, and this is, I, I, and I can, I can probably say, I mean, I know I can say this, but it's for me, a lot of times when I'm being compassionate or acting the way I am, I, in my mind, am making it as if it's a facade for me because I'm compartmentalizing that. Because if I, I get emotionally involved in all these cases and I can have, you know, some sort of trauma, secondhand trauma because of all this stuff. But at the end of the day, I have to figure out a way to release that from me or else it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep me up all the time. It's going to stress me out. I mean, I have portions where I'm just really stressed out. You know, when I was in in college, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. When your Crohn's disease is really bad, or if it's not bad even, you want to manage your stress levels because stress can cause flare-ups. A lot of that is stuff I've learned from like my stress management classes that I had to take when I was in college, um, as well as like the doctors made me take it because they were like, look, you if you have stress because of this, it's just going to make it so much worse. And so I kind of learned how to turn off my feeling mind after I am done dealing with just for that portion. So I'm there to help. I'm, 
I'm feeling it. I'm trying to help them as much and as possible. And I'm genuine tell. about it. I can tell it. that, yeah. But then after it's done, or at, especially for me, after that clock hits five o'clock, I have to turn it off. You know, it's called compassion fatigue. It really happens. That's why a lot of victim advocates in like police stations or um, attorney's offices, there's such a high rate of turnover there because they get compassion fatigue. They want to help all these people so much and they just... They burn themselves out. And so you have to take care of yourself too. And so doing that, you just have to learn either how to turn off your feeling mind for that person, even if it's just for a little bit, because you need that de-stressor. And to me, that's kind of what works. And it won't work for everybody. And some people might not have that ability to turn that off right away, but it's something I had to train myself to do as well. I had to be able to say, you know what? I know that this person is needing help but it's not something that I can fix in these next three or four hours after five o'clock. So I'm gonna turn it off until tomorrow morning because even if I were to do all the work I could, nothing's gonna change earlier because I am doing this right now. Yeah. And it's really only for me, I'm feeling guilt because I feel like I'm not doing everything I can, but I am. It's just sometimes you need to have those breaks where you're compartmentalizing the time periods and things like that. Yeah, for me. And yeah, giving it to God for me. Um, (laughs) If there's someone listening that's struggling, what would be your message to them? You know, I tell this to every single one of my clients when I meet with them. You know, I tell them that they can always call me if there's a problem or whatever. A lot of them want to, they want to step up and take care of this for their family. They want to be the rock, but they shouldn't be. They can be for parts of it, but they shouldn't have to deal with all of this. I had one client who was like, no, I'll take care of all the paperwork and all that stuff. You guys just help me get all the things I need for it. And then after about three months of not hearing from him, I called him up and I was like, hey, like we want to know what's going on. How can we help? And he goes, oh, I'm really struggling. The life insurance company won't pay me out. And I was like, okay, just give me their number. And I got him a check within a week. Right. Um, it's just because I, that's all I deal with. And so for me, it was just like, call me, <laughs> call somebody. Um, if you need help with something specific, if you need to talk to somebody, find someone you can talk to. I always encourage therapy for my clients and anyone that's really struggling. A therapist is, it still has ever, as much as people want to say, Oh, there's no stigma there. There's there is, is because if there was no stigma, we wouldn't say there's, there's no, stigma. no stigma. Exactly. You know, there like is still there. It's overcompensating saying, and there, there's nothing to be ashamed about with seeking a therapist. A lot of people don't. And that's because they feel like they can handle it. And not everyone needs one. But if you're struggling with something, find someone you can talk to about it. It, it can be as simple as a best friend that you kind of just unload everything off of. But, you know, sometimes your best friend might be dealing with their own thing as well. And they can't handle any more they can't have that secondhand space. trauma. They need they need their own space. They need to be able to have time to do what they need to take care of too. And therapists are there to help with that. They know how to not take that on as a personal thing. They've been trained to compartmentalize, if you will, when they're helping people and when they're not. And they know how to kind of deal with their own stuff. You know, it's, it, it's something that we all need to kind of figure out, but I would say 
you know, taking someone to either learn stress management or calling and talking to somebody. That's the main thing. Whether it's a therapist, there's plenty of these new ways to do therapy where it's like on the phone, there's now like a text therapy group that you can text a therapist and it's like a 20 minute text session. And it's, you know, there's all these new ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there for, you know, there's, and there's resources for all sorts of different types of people that need help. You know, if you're struggling with depression or, um, you know, eating disorders with suicidal thoughts, with addiction, um, addiction, whatever, there's all sorts of support groups out there for it. Facebook has a support group for everything you can think of. There's plenty of groups out there that are for that. You know, that's kind of what we've realized doing this work is that not everyone has the same needs, even in within their own type of community, you know, might have someone that has an addiction to pornography. It's not going to be the same thing as an addiction to drugs. Yes, they kind of behave in the same way, but they're very different vices. So, and you have different ways of coping or avoiding those, those vices kind of have to find your own community as well. Thank you so much for yeah, being here course. today. Yeah. If people want to find more about you. Yeah. We have our, our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is just at Utah Survivors. We have our website, which is utahhomicidesurvivors.org. Um, if people wanted to check us out, donate. Like I said, all of our services are free. We never charge a penny. The only time we ever do charge anything is for court fees, and that's because we don't charge them. The court does, but we always try to find donors to take care of those. And sometimes it's not always possible. Sometimes it's not always there, but we try to have a little reserve basically for court fees. So that way they're literally not having to expend a dime. Very cool. And you're sponsoring four episodes on the ICU podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think it'll be a good way to, we're, we're just trying to raise awareness because we're so new and people don't know about us. And, you know, there's literally times where I have to call up victim advocates or sheriff's offices and say, hey, we want to help this family and they've never heard of us. Right. And even though we do a lot of great work, I mean, to date in the last year and a half, we've collected and um, gotten over a million dollars in assets that families didn't even know they had access to. So these are not just wow. like the normal bank accounts that they thought they had. It's things that we were able to go and get and find for them. We do a lot of really great work. We can always do more and we want to do more. So we need people to hear about it. Yeah, we're excited. We hope we can get the word out there. Thanks for being on the podcast, Brandon. Of course. Thank you again to our sponsor this week, Watercolors by Brie Custom Art. Brie has done custom watercolor for me and I have been so pleased with it. She's incredible at what she does. Brie does all sorts of custom art. She does homes, she does family, and she also creates beautiful portraits of Christ. Some of my favorite work she's done is she does custom art of families who have lost a loved one and it's so meaningful, often involving the savior. This can all be ordered on her website, watercolorsbybrie.com, and I'll link that in the show notes. Next week is our finale episode for 2019. I do always take a two-week break off at Christmas to focus on my family and worshiping Christ. I'm ecstatic because next week's episode I have been saving. It's a conversation with Michelle McCullough, the businesswoman, the author, the speaker. She sort of does it all. She is one of the most sought-out speakers in Utah, and she travels all over the country. She is going to give us some great tips on how to have our baggage strengthen us, not pull us down. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you.